Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Ed Marks here. Welcome, Digital Voices. Super stoked to share with you just an amazing guest and the insights that I know that you're going to learn as well as myself during the next 30 minutes with Dr. Chris Stout. He is a clinical psychologist. I'm going to read the highlights, but then I want to jump in a little bit into more a full version of his bio because I think you'll be really impressed and we'll definitely in the show notes put some links where you can get even more information. But he's a best-selling author, psychologist, adventurer, startup whisperer. I want to get into all these different things. Accidental humanitarian, and the list goes on. But Dr. Stout's career includes business, government, and nonprofits, as well as the UN and academia. He's traveled the world, published 38 books, won a wide range of accolades, including four additional doctorates. He is licensed clinical psychologist and founding director of the Center for Global Initiatives, a top-rated healthcare nonprofit, His entrepreneurial experience is demonstrated in multiple startups. He's been on the faculty at the University of Illinois College of Medicine and Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine. He was appointed to the World Economic Forum's 100 Global Leaders of Tomorrow. It was an invited faculty at their annual meeting. Dr. Stout is a fellow in the APA, past president of the IPA, and is a member of the National Academies of Practice. He is a best-selling author whose works have been translated into eight languages, He is a popular LinkedIn influencer with almost half a million followers and is the host of the popular Living a Life in Full podcast, a top 5% show with an audience reach of over 3 million. He has traveled to over 100 countries and founded a kindergarten in Tanzania. He is listed in founder Richard Saul Werman's Who's Really Who 1000. Purdue has named a scholarship in his honor. Dr. Scout was educated at Purdue, the University of Chicago, and Forest Institute. He was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School. The APA named him Psychology's International Rockstar in recognition of his global work. He's been interviewed by everyone, including CNBC, CNN, NBC, PBS, NPR, Oprah, Times, Chicago Tribune, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, and others. His archive of professional work is part of Smithsonian's Museum for the History of Psychology. He balances all his academic humanitarian efforts with his family and ultra-running motorcycle bills, adventure sports, and climbing, having summited three of the world's seven summits. I mean, he's just an incredible individual. That's why I wanted to have him on as our guest. Uh, just full of good stuff. And the, the best part of all of that is he's just a good person, uh, which you'll come to know. <laughs> and so that's how we first sort of met. Chris is, is uh, your own podcast and, and someone introduced us and then I became a follower like millions of others and, and gleam so much out of all the content that you produce so freely for others. And you're, you're just such a giving, amazing person. And so thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. And hey, man, it takes one to know one, right? Right back at you. <laughs> so tell us your personal mission or, or mantra. What sort of drives you? Probably early on, I, I did a lot of reading a rather bookish little boy. And uh, I read a bunch of stuff by Buckminster Fuller. And he always kind of talked about being a verb. And that really kind of resonated with me. And again, being being the nerd that I am, as you know, um, I even had that as a license plate on a car for a period of time of <laughs> 
of be a verb. And that's kind of, I guess, you know, to kind of just kind of spin it down to its essence. That's really to take action, you know, not sit back on your laurels to, uh, you know, see what needs getting done and roll up your sleeves and try and do as best you can to, to make it better. Let's talk about your passion around digital because you, as I described in your introduction, I mean, you, you do so many things, but you also are very digital literate. And as we get there, what inspired you first to get your doctorate? Well, they probably kind of go hand in hand. I actually started off as an undergrad math major, and that was because it was back in the era when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and that was how you got into computer science. There wasn't even a computer science degree for me in 1977. So when I started, so it was learning Fortran, doing punch cards, batching them overnight and hoping the next day that when you went in, you know, that everything would work, working on a deck 10 with no monitor and, you know, just really kind of kind of the, the fundamental early days of things. And just really, you know, I kind of saw the power of what technology could start to do. I mean, we just wrote, you know, really goofy Fortran programs. But the, the good and the bad of it was, was that I, I saw the power, but I just couldn't see myself, you know, writing code you know, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. So I just coincidentally took a psychology course. I'd never taken a psychology course in high school. So did that, fell in love with it, took another one, took another one, took another one, and wound up changing majors. The math department and the psychology department were both in the School of Science. So that was nice. I had a lot of overlap with uh, credits and whatnot. And I wound up taking almost every single psychology course there was. I graduated with a double major in psychology. I think I had like 50 some odd credits just in psychology. So really liked that. And kind of as the joke goes, although there's a certainly a strong grain of truth to it, what do you do with an undergrad degree in psychology is you go to graduate school. <laughs> so so I did that. And I kind of bounced around in the sense of what do I want to do in between, like, because I, back, I graduated the BS rather than a BA in psychology, because again, I kind of leaning into the science part of things and thought I would wind up, you know, being a researcher, which I have done, but I really got involved in a clinical program, a doctoral clinical psychology program, which was much more obviously patient focused. So that got me into that area and then uh, got my doctorate and then uh, had did my pre-doc and po- did two postdocs and then got my license and then uh, did a combination of things, as you kind of noted in my bio of, uh, you know, doing clinical work and doing academic work and doing research and wound up with a career that really kind of blended both of um, working with patients, working in clinical settings that way, but then also administrative stuff and, and writing and, and doing the research. So Chris, that makes a lot of sense then when you were describing your undergrad and your background in, in math and and those sort of things because you've intentionally have I, it appears ten, intentionally have included sort of technology or digital in your practice and and I know that you're big into analytics you know which is part of uh, digital so was that intentional or did it you just happened to come together that way? My career is also probably, you know, a lot like Mr. Magoo, you know, I kind of just go from one thing and then get, a, you know, curious in something else and fall into something else. And that tends to turn out okay. But I guess in some sense, uh, to be very honest, full disclosure, full transparency, when I, after I graduated, even, you know, having a doctorate, having all the, the trainings and, and whatnots that I had done, I was still very, very, very nervous about misdiagnosing somebody. My dissertation was on diagnosis. So 
So I was really maybe overly focused in that area. But I went back to my programming roots and I wrote a program on what's called differential diagnostics, in this case, differential psychodiagnostics. And I wanted to make sure that when I saw a patient that presented with certain kinds of psychiatric symptoms, that I wasn't uh, inappropriately treating them psychologically when indeed they had an endocrine disorder or they had something else going on with them that I would need to you know, make a referral to a, a specialist or something. So I took, gosh, what was it? D-Base 3 Plus by Ashton Tate. And, and I forget what all else, but I just kind of created this uh, sorting program and loaded it with data on psychiatric disorders and symptoms and then overlaid that with medical disorders that had similar symptom presentations. And it gave me sort of this probabilistic output as to, you know, is, you know, what's the likelihood that this is just totally psychological versus something that might be more biologically based. So that was really the start of that. And again, being, you know, kind of a nerd in this area, I wrote articles about that. I found that writing these kinds of programs wasn't that difficult. So then I wrote, published an article on about how to, you know, put these kinds of things together. And parallel to that, back then, these in the, the early days in Northwestern in the 1980s, in psychology, and, and you would probably know this from your background in medicine in general, there really wasn't a whole lot of uh, outcome studies being done in psychology. Basically, you, if you were trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist, that's what you did. If you're trained as an analyst, that's what you did. If you're trained as a whatever gestalt, you name it, then that's kind of what you did. But there wasn't a whole lot of evaluation. And then there was a bit of a stigma and a bias in a negative way that, um, you know, if, if the patient didn't get better, it was the patient's fault. It wasn't the therapist's, you know, shortcomings, or it wasn't the, the, therapeutic approach wasn't a good match or a good fit for that patient or their circumstance or their diagnosis. So we started doing outcome studies. I did this stuff with uh, Ken Howard and, and Michael O'Mahony and John Lyons back at Northwestern. Then we started publishing in that area with Wiley a lot on looking at outcomes. How do you measure them? And I, you know, I talk about this in the sense of like psychiatric and psychological outcomes are very squishy because there's a lot of variables that can play into that and play out very differently with a per person's demographics and, and all sorts of things, which kind of went back to what my dissertation looked at. So to fast forward then, um, and again, this is really kind of more in your domain, but, you know, electronic medical records came along and all of a sudden we had these data collection devices for us that were systematic, that were accessible, that were searchable. And that was fantastic. So taking outcome studies that took forever to do to doing getting electronic medical records and collecting data that way with appropriate HIPAA and, and data sharing things all in place and security all in place. Then that so that's 80s, 90s, then the 2000s, I shifted into and this is now at the College of Medicine at University of Illinois into evidence-based practice. So now if you've got a large enough database that's somewhat generalizable to at least certain populations, you can start to create treatment guidelines. And you can start to then take a look at what was called or what is called evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice to be able to say, you know, if we have this kind of a patient in this kind of a background and this kind of a circumstance with these kinds of symptoms and diagnoses, then this is, here's the, the, where we should start off with in our clinical toolkit to start to treat them. So that then 
all of that stuff mashed together now in the the 2010s and into today, you know, are the big data, the data analytics, and then the greater sophistication of being able to look at things of prescriptive uh, precision medicine and being able to be much more prescriptive with greater uh, specificity. And then we've got the other, you know, components of this of artificial intelligence and things to help with our treatment planning and decision making. You were really doing, you know, as I as I listen, I'm not at all surprised, but you were doing what we refer to now, you know, especially in healthcare, digital transformation since the beginning of your career. You've been a pioneer in many ways and even in your practice with the incorporation, well, writing your own code, writing your own systems, the incorporation of analytics for evidence-based outcomes and, and of course, then naturally the electronic health record and so forth. But you've been really part of the leading edge of this whole digital transformation that has going, been going on for some time. So major kudos to you. And, and again, it's not surprising to me at no. all. <laughs> Thanks, brother. I want to jump into uh, life and we'll try to incorporate some leadership. But because I know everyone, when they listen, when they look you up, if they haven't heard of you before or listen to the bio in the beginning, it's amazing what you fit into life. And I love, you know, the whole thing about life is a, is a verb, you know, living is, is action oriented. And how do you fit it all in? So you climb mountains. So we have a lot, so much in common as we know, because we've chatted before, yeah. but climbing mountains or rebuilding motorcycles or, you know, all the different things that you do, how, how do you, and your practice and your career, how do you fit it all in? Usually very poorly. <laughs> so, you know, part, here's the secret sauce. You, know, you just don't do it all at once, you know, and I, I've been at this for, you know, 35 plus years now. So it, you know, just all kind of adds up after time. So that's, that's part of it. That's why it sounds like such a, you know, a, a humongous set of things just because it's, you know, you live long enough and you do stuff It just, it all adds up. But practically speaking, I mean, the, there's something I kind of call, I, I don't think I coined this, but it's it's a nice fit. It's like stacking or content stacking or two birds with one stone or the processional effect. I think also uh, tip of the hat to Buckminster Fuller who talked about that sort of a thing. And what I mean by that, I wrote a piece for LinkedIn a while back that people can look up called the portfolio career. And in that piece, part of it is, is that if you, if you start to do one kind of thing and move in a certain kind of area, there might be other kinds of things simultaneous to that that can be additive to it and to be helpful. So for example, like, you know, you you mentioned my climbing, you mentioned my, you know, travel, you mentioned talks and stuff. Well, one of the things to go not, you know, literally or or just have a miserable time, kill yourself of, of climbing is that you have to stay fit. So in the process of staying fit, then, you know, I'd go for runs like you. I remember your photos and stuff of, you know, images from an early morning run and things, which I just love. And in that context, like I would be thinking about like an upcoming talk or I'd be like, problem solving a some kind of you know circumstance at work or something like that and just because it's a as you know you know running and whatnot is a very meditative kind of thing and i'd carry a little recorder with me because i'd get ideas and i didn't want to lose them or focus on one idea fearful to, to forget it and to miss out on the next ones so that was helpful then taking that running gave me a certain base of fitness and then when i would try to coordinate climbs like if i got invited to give a talk internationally then i would try and coordinate that like 
like uh, usually after the talk uh, to say, well, I'm already over here. I might as well then go do whatever. So I got invited to do a talk in Auckland years ago, gave that talk, prepped for it. And after the talk, I was that close to Australia. So then I flew to Australia and then climbed the highest mountain in Australia, which is just really kind of a hike. It's a non-technical, you know, not big deal. But it was just, you know, kind of like that sort of a thing. So it's sort of like when there's a certain kind of, you know, push or drive for whatever it is, something professional, something with your family, something with, you know, a personal goal or, or whatever it is to try and then add in all the other kinds of things as best you can with them. When I would give a talk at APA, those are all in, in North America. So once our kids were old enough, then, you know, we'd all go you know, to that. So, you know, I would go give my talk or whatever and go to listen to other people's talks. And, you know, my wife would take the kids and they would go sightseeing or there'd oftentimes be other things, you know, that uh, activities for family members. So kind of for me, the secret sauce is just to say, you know, it, it is good to be focused on that one thing. But while you're focused on that one thing that is maybe the primary goal, there may be opportunities, not every time, but there may be opportunities to be able to to add on or to content stack or to activity stack or adventure stack, these other kinds of things along with it. I, I just had uh, Michael Clinton on my show and he calls it layering. He has a concept uh, in his book, Roar, about each 10 years, he like takes on a kind of a general new challenge and then every activity during that decade then he adds these different layers to it and again as you know with fitness and, and travel and anything else these kinds of things all kind of tee you up to be able to do maybe spontaneous things or things you hadn't planned but just all add to that whole you know overall life resume those are super practical and, and another easy practical one is listening to a life in full while I run, while I take it <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> Good. <laughs> You're out there running anyways, so why yeah. not listen? Instead of just music, which is fine too, music's good, mm. but maybe it's a podcast and you can learn or, or a book or a, you know, a book that, that you run to. So I love that concept of, of stacking. And like you said, you do it enough over time. It brings you a lot of life experience for sure. And then Absolutely. that probably gives you a lot of uh, ideas and insights for further uh, development and to write 38 books, which is pretty impressive. You know, I hadn't planned to ask you this question, Chris, but let me uh, throw a curveball at you anyways. 38 books, that's a lot. I, I've, I've written a few and I know the effort that it takes. What's one or two that, that you're most uh, proud of or, or top of mind proud of, you know, that, that when you think about, wow, all the books, you know, the, this one is really my favorite or something like that. Thanks. I am probably very partial to, and I'll tell you one of the little secrets or, or tips around getting a, to a number of 38 too. But my favorite was probably uh, called The New Humanitarians is a three-volume set published by Prager. And the, one of the things, here's one of the secrets. When I was writing with Prager in the heyday of it, when I was doing a lot more writing back, back in the day, they love series books. So I did a three-volume set, The New Humanitarians. They all have different ISBNs. They're all different books. They're volumes one, two, and three. They're not editions one, two, and three. <clears throat> so all the content is different, and chapters and everything are totally different. There are three standalone books. But that's three books under one book contract. 
contact with Prager. So that's one way to do it. And then likewise, I did one on terrorism with them. That was four books. We did a follow-up. That was a fifth book. But it was all under the same, you know, kind of rubric. But back to the New Humanitarians, why, why is it my favorite? Again, back to content stacking. That book came out around a, a certain Venn diagram point in my life where I was doing some stuff with the World Economic Forum, which was heady stuff. And I felt like I was, you know, it misinvited, like, what am I doing here kind of a thing. And met these really cool people that had been doing cool things in startups and cool things in nonprofits and cool things in healthcare and just, you know, a very diverse group of of high performance folks. And, and I got to see what they were doing. And it was really cool. And I wanted to do that too. And I got started, I was getting ready to my nonprofit had not become a 501c3 yet. I was just kind of doing it, you know, in my spare time, so to speak. And I had a mentor have and had a mentor back then. He said, you know, you gotta, you gotta make this a 501c3. You gotta make this, you know, for real, not just some, you know, kind of do it when you can, cause you're writing all the checks yourself. You're doing everything by yourself. You need a team, blah, blah, blah. And he's absolutely right. So he, he was an attorney, his wife's an attorney and they helped us. They did pro bono to get our 501c3 established. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, they're helping out with the mechanics of that and the legalities and registrations and all. But how do you create doctors without borders? How do you create Amnesty International? How do you create these like in me, you know, the kind of the top, top of the top tier kinds of of places, as well as some of the folks that I was meeting and and working with at World Economic Forum. So I decided to, you know, write a book about it. So so I wanted to interview these people and it gave me, you know, this is pre-podcast. So it kind of gives you this opportunity to talk to people and interview people. And so each chapter in the New Humanitarians is a, a standalone, like there's a chapter on Doctors Without Borders. There's a chapter on Amnesty International. There's a chapter on Southern Poverty Law Center, all the ones that I either knew people at or wanted to know people at, and we put that together. Simultaneous to that, I thought, well, I can't interview all these people. And it really grew from one book organically into these three volumes. So I contacted one of the graduate programs I had a relationship with. I said, hey, we can, if you have some graduate students I can, you know, use to, to train how to do these interviews, then they can do these interviews. They can author the chapters, co-author the chapters, what have you, and get a publication out of it. I that, you know, high, uh, high tides raise all ships. They get a publication. The books get to grow. I get to not have to interview 45 different people for three books, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the books came out. So it's just sort of like I look back on that as a, this kind of cool project that I got to learn mercenarily, like how these you know programs develop themselves. I got to get publicity to all those programs because some were the top ones that people already knew about household names. Others were very new and people didn't know about them at the time. Graduate students got this opportunity to meet with some really cool people and get role modeled that way. They got a publication before they even, you know, graduated, you know, with their doctoral program. So again, it's kind of that, the same kind of mantra, you know, practicing what I'm preaching about the the content stacking of, you know, the, the goal was to develop my own 501c3 and to learn from others how they did theirs. The ancillary, you know, processional effects of that was, you know, being able to get books, being able to help out graduate students, being able to publicize really amazing programs that people knew about and others that people didn't know about at the time. I think when you're doing really unique things and you're you're helping others that it draws other people to you, right? And they want to be, wow, look what uh, Chris is doing and, and what's being done in his through his life. And I want to be part of that. I want to experience that. And then you draw people to yourself that then can help you and it helps them at the same time. You know, there's so many different directions, Chris, that we could go and I could spend, I wish we were neighbors because 
I'd probably be <laughs> bugging too. you all the time. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> I talk a lot about empathy, and we talk a lot about empathy in healthcare. You clearly have this fullness of empathy, your human service orientation, for which you've won awards for. I know you didn't do it for the awards. Those just came as a result of you doing these things, You know, having a kindergarten in Tanzania. And how did you, have you ever thought about how did this empathy or this service orientation, how did it manifest itself in your life? Is it something that that's replicable, that for those who aspire to that, are there things that they can do? You know, how, I think people wonder, are you born with it or is it something that you can cultivate? That's a very pithy question. I guess my background was, we were talking off mic before, you know, I, I, I was born and grew up in Dallas and I don't know how public this is, but I, my folks got divorced before I was one year old. So I was raised by a single mom. And in spite of, you know, her having 40 hour work week and all that sort of a thing, she was very active involved, very active and involved in doing things for others. And because I was an only child, she couldn't afford a babysitter. I got carted along to all these different kinds of activities, which was great. You know, which was, I didn't feel so great at the time. It was like, oh my gosh, now what? But, you know, we went to a nurse. My mom had just a very great musical ability of singing and of uh, playing a variety of different instruments, which must have been a recessive gene because I, I can play the radio and that's about it. But <laughs> she would go to nursing homes and as a volunteer, she would do a variety of different kinds of things and, and sing and play music. There was always some kind of something that would fill up, you know, maybe one evening a week or at least one of the days of, of the weekend where we would be out, you know, going someplace else and, and doing something, you know, for the church or doing something for nearby, you know, nursing home or some something. And, you know, I guess that, you know, in terms of exposure, you know, nature, nurture, whatever, that that was, you know, that was an ethic that I got to see demonstrated by her behavior. You know, I guess I felt that, you know, part of it too, I mean, that was a wonderful part of things, but it was also, it was kind of tough. You know, I was, I was very obese and named Stout, you know, I've always, <laughs> I'm no, I'm not obese anymore, but I'm still named Stout. And as a little boy, you know, that was kind of a, not, not a great thing. I had a ton of orthopedic issues. I didn't, couldn't run. I didn't have, you know, I had these like bizarre kind of clod hopper shoes and stuff as a boy and just never was active or anything and lived in a very kind of gritty urban area of Dallas. And it was just sort of, you know, there's no outdoors or just none of those kinds of things. And I just, once I kind of got to these points where I could start to do other kinds of things and, and got older and, and got independent, there was still this part of me that felt like, you know, I, you know, and maybe this is also part of the psychology part of, you know, trying to, to give back and trying to be of help to others, that there's such a, a different kind of joy and satisfaction that I think it, I've certainly experienced periodically with these kinds of things. But I just, I really, that's my dopamine, you know, drip. That's the kind of thing that I get a very physiological, emotional, and therefore mercenary motivation to seek that out when I do help others or if someone, you know, does, you know, I, I love getting, you know, compliments. This is, I'm on cloud nine for the rest of the week. Thanks to you, Ed, you know, for the kind words that you said, because when, when you put yourself out there to be helpful as a, you know, as a psychologist in a therapy session, or if it's writing a book or even just, you know, like writing a blog for LinkedIn, you know, people are, are more than willing these days to full throatedly, you know, you know, give their critique or tell you where you're wrong or, you know, whatever. And it always feels a little, nerve wracking and peer review, you know, for a journal article that can be, that used to be a very bloody process and, and reviewers and editors, you know, before a book manuscript or, you know, winds up on a bookshelf, you know, is, 
kind of a traumatic event oftentimes, at least for me, other writers, I'm sure like you are much better and don't have to go through that. But, but for me, you know, it's just like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm an idiot. I can't, you know, write, right. I don't know what I'm trying to say and, and going through those kinds of things. So when you do feel like you have resonated with someone or you have made some kind of modest addition or modest benefit to something to me, that's like I said, that's, that's my dopamine hit. You did offer, there's practical advice in there where you can create that and you can also help create it within your own family or with colleagues by the examples that you shared, you know, how your, your mother took you along. So sometimes I always say things are caught, not taught. <laughs> that would be a great example of yeah, what here, here. your mom did for you. I probably didn't, you know, give you a, a super, you know, tip filled kind of uh, answer to that. I get part of it is just, I think there's maybe some intrinsic aspects to people. So maybe this leans in more to the nurture aspect of, you know, I, you know, I, I can tell you for sure. Cause I worked in forensic settings also with, with, uh, when I was with the state of Illinois and there are some people that have zero empathy, some people that are sociopathic, <laughs> you know, and, and there's a wide spectrum of everything in between, you know, from your, your Albert Schweitzer's on one end to, you know, your whoever's on the opposite end. And we're not always, feeling that way all the time at the same level either. You know, we evolve, we change, we we become parents or we, you know, have these certain traumatic or, or growthful experiences. You know, we're, we're very complex folks in complex circumstances. But if there are people that, you know, do have that wonderful experience of feeling what it's like to be of help to someone and that that help mercenarily makes you feel better, you know, like just being grateful for things and those kinds of things I think are, I would like to think are somewhat universal, but, you know, realistically, I'm I'm sure they're, they're probably not. But for those that do, there's certainly lots of ways out there to be able to benefit from that. And while, while helping others in the same time. Chris, you've done so many things as we, as we've already chatted about, what's the one, if you could name one, and I know that's a I'm sure a difficult thing to do, but what's one thing that you're most proud of in terms of all the different things that you've accomplished thus far? Because I know you're only uh, a third <laughs> of the way through. <laughs> oh, golly, Molly. Honestly, I guess family, you know, again, growing up without a dad. I mean, I had a dad, <laughs> but I didn't see him very often. Mm-hmm. And feeling terrified, like when my wife and I got married, it was a second marriage for me. The first one lasted about 10 minutes, but uh, nevertheless, and we waited 10 years to have our first child, partially because of, of my concerns. Like I didn't know, you know, I didn't have a good role model. I'm going to suck as a father, you know, just just sheer terror of feeling like, you know, what's going to happen. And then likewise, you know, in relationships, like, oh my gosh, you know, I, folks couldn't keep it together. I couldn't keep it together, you know, and, ugh. and you know, my wife and I will be, have been married um, 37 years in a couple of months. You know, it's been ups and downs. Um, our kids are now in their twenties. We have two and they're, you know, doing well. And I think generally doing kind of what it is that they want to do and feeling pretty actualized about that. It's, it's been a bumpy road road for all of us. You know, everything's not just a hockey stick without hiccups and things, but you know, in spite of all those kinds of things, you know, I'd say that's probably the the key thing of feeling like, uh, you know, at the end of the day, have I done the kinds of things I wanted to do? Are there still things I want to do in the context of my family? You know, do they know that I have their back? Do I know that they have my back? And feeling that kind of kinship, which I know you feel with your family as well, too, is probably like the number one thing. It doesn't matter the books or the, you know, even the clinical work as much as, you know, again, back to being mercenary of I, things would be awful if, if I did not have my family. A beautiful answer. And, and I'm not surprised. 
we're winding down. I have one more question for you, but just as a, a heads up, I'm, I'm going to let you finish uh, and double down on anything that we talked about or may have missed. But you have, and I hope people who don't follow you already after this podcast follow you. It's just fascinating the amount of uh, excellent content that you put out. And you have these amazing guests on your podcasts. I love listening to it. And you learn, as I do, from every guest that you have. What are maybe one or two things that are top of mind, uh, you know, because it's probably hard to remember everything that you've learned and, you know, what's the one or two best things? But what are the one or two best things that you can think of right now that you've learned from some of your guests that might be interesting for our audience? From the practical side, it seems like, you know, again, kind of the Venn diagram, because for people that may not be familiar with the show, it's very magazine-y. I mean, we don't have a particular, you know, it's not just on tech, it's not just on humanitarian work, it's not just on medicine or whatever, it's on everything. And the the kind of a common thread amongst all the diversity of gifts has been that people have, I want to call it a regimen, but like practices, they have certain approaches to how it is that they do whatever it is they do. If it's their, their specific work, like how they manage their lab, if it's their family life, it's, if it's their writing process for, I've interviewed a lot of journalists and a lot of uh, book authors, you know, those kinds, no matter kind of what your specialty is or what it is that you're, you do and that you enjoy, People have a practice around that. And I find, you know, there's a, a great benefit to having practices around whatever it is. And there's, you know, I can't say what those practices should be. Those you should, you know, people should develop and experiment and, you know, rinse and repeat what works and let go of what doesn't. And I guess maybe if I can sneak in another one that's a little less technique is that almost, I can't think of anybody. I mean, I, we're in our fifth season now, so I, I'm not fully remembering everybody immediately, but Every, it seems like everybody that I have had a conversation with, you included, have this wonderful, sincere, authentic humility to who they are and humbleness. I mean, again, you know, Ed, you've been on the show. I've had astronauts. I've had ambassadors. I've had, well, like, for example, Phil, um, Phil and Linda later, you know, who started the Renaissance Weekends, you know, former ambassador to the UK, blah, 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 blah. And in that conversation, again, very publicly, make me feel like I'm the guest and they're like complimenting me. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like, well, I don't know, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> you know, look at you. And so, but, it, and it's sincere. It's not baloney or anything. They're not blowing smoke or anything. I mean, it's like, and, and it, again, just, you know, randomly sample. I, I can't think of anybody that was like a jerk or anything in the sense of like, you know, I'm the cat's meow kind of thing. It's like everybody that I've spoken with, you know, I mean, they're like, you know, they got like MD PhDs, they're JD PhDs, they're been, you know, bestsellers and they've, you know, whatever, whatever you see as a highlight kind of a thing. I've got an upcoming one with a, actually a Nobel laureate. And it's sort of like all of these folks to a T really, when you're having a conversation, care about you. And they talk about you and they ask you, you know, they flip the the table and they're asking me questions. And it's sort of like that, I think, speaks again to to people's humanity. So the best thing is, you know, develop a practice that works for whatever it is that you need to be creative and and do your art or your your athletics or your whatever's. And then, you know, care about the other person and and be sincere and authentic about that. Yeah, those are uh, profound. They sound simple, but they're profound words of wisdom that we can all benefit from. And, and thank you for sharing that. I love the humility thing. It, that is, I, as you were answering that question, I was thinking back through our guests too and some of the commonalities of, of what makes people truly, you know, sort of authentic and genuine. And it's having this some sort of level of humility. And 
is really critical. And it's another one of those things. We don't have time to unpack it, Chris, but you know, another one of those things like empathy, like how do you develop if you don't have humility? How can you develop it? Be coached into it? You know, are you bored with it? You know, that sort of thing. It, that'd be interesting. Uh, topic to to run down someday but yeah i can't remember the product that they sell but you know the most interesting man in the world type thing uh yeah. i think <laughs> i think uh yeah dosekis or something uh you're definitely that person uh, it's just such a great person and it's talking about humility you are the embodiment of humility so how would you like to end this, Chris? I want to leave it with you. So is there something that we want to double down on that we touched on or something maybe we didn't touch on that our audience of digital leaders, you know, in healthcare across uh, providers and payers? I, w- I want to leave the last word for you because you, you're just so full of wisdom. Maybe two things. One is, again, I, I can't just wrap up without, you know, tossing it right back to you, my friend. I mean, you... You are a great role model. I mean, the, you know, since I've known you and did the history on you to get to know you better and have you and have a conversation on our show and then just knowing kind of your trajectory of the kinds of things that you've done athletically and your family and your career and your work and your innovation and everything is just, you know, the tip of the hat. I mean, it's, it's a, you're a great role model yourself. People need to, you know, if they don't already aren't familiar with you, Google you and, and look up all the amazing things that, that you've done. In terms of doubling down, I guess one of the things I'm experimenting with, I've kind of where I'm at in my life now is really focusing back on my nonprofit. We've revamped our website. I'm much happier with it than what it had been pre-revamp. And for folks that have an interest in it, we tend to focus in global health. If you have a humanitarian interest, that's kind of what we do. I call it open sourcing humanitarian intervention because, which should resonate with some of the tech folks, because everything there is always free all the time. It's a resource-filled place. We've got lectures, we've got podcasts, we've got links, we've got downloadable spreadsheets. I mean, everything just, you know, if this is an area that you have an interest in, if you want to start a nonprofit, if you want to just be helpful to some something, you know, then to do that. And kind of my experiment, and this is the first time, so here's your, your scoop marks here. I'm going to be experimenting with an upcoming episode on my show is on effective altruism. And I've written a long form piece that will probably publish in August or September on the concept of effective altruism. And to kind of put my money literally where my mouth is and have skin in the game, I have publicly committed that uh, I'm donating 100% of my salary to nonprofits. And I did that for all of calendar year. 2021. And so far, I've done it for all of 2022. And I hope to be able to do that for as long as I can. <laughs> so so we'll see. So I you know, take that as a hopefully a, an inspirational, motivational kind of thing. And people are like, how the heck can you do that? And again, I've, it'll be kind of splashing more when my um, show comes out on August 1st on effective altruism and Charlie Bressler, who is the guest and kind of the, the, you know, I tip my hat to him with the work that he's done with Peter Singer with a book called the, uh, the life you can save and their whole foundation. So that was really kind of being touched and impacted by a guest, man. Oh my gosh, that was the Charlie Bressler episode that's coming up. So, so that's kind of my big, my big double down. That's what I'm really kind of focused on of, uh, you know, how can I be a little bit more contributory to the stuff that I'm doing already? How can I amplify that? And you've given me another opportunity to be able to do that with uh, your kindness of being able to be on your show and the the fun for me of being able to reconnect with you publicly like this, which is always a trip. It's awesome. We'll definitely need to figure out a way when we're in the same geography. Maybe we'll climb uh, your fourth, my fourth and your fourth summit together 
someday. But Excellent. You're, <laughs> you're scoop, <laughs> scoop here first on effective altruism. That's very, very cool. <laughs> I have so many takeaways. My uh, notes are full. Uh, I'll just end by saying, be a verb. It'll make all the difference in your life. You heard it from Chris, uh, Dr. Stout, been a great guest. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Ed. Good to catch up, man. That wraps up another episode of Digital Voices. Thank you, DJ and producer Megan Aylesworth. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening. 